Good evening, everybody. As uh, um, John mentioned at the beginning of the service, this is a kind of a follow-up for a uh, sermon that I did a couple weeks ago, and actually sort of follow-up toward a general theme as we've been going through the book of Nehemiah in the morning services. And we're sort of in the evening service here between books. We're starting up, I guess, next week. Uh, we're starting up a, uh, on the book of Jonah, I believe. Uh, so this is sort of a one-off uh, on a passage that we're not doing the whole book from. Uh, so I will uh, summarize sort of what I talked about a couple of weeks ago. If you weren't here, uh, I'll uh, give you a little bit of an overview of what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but the passage for tonight is one that I picked just because it's relevant to the topic of corporate sin that I talked about a couple of weeks ago. And there was a lot of questions that came up uh, after I preached that sermon. Uh, some of them we may talk about in the uh, Q&A after the service, uh, but I thought I would also, uh, during the sermon here, address some of that and also just look at that concept uh, a little bit more in depth. Uh, so the passage is in your bulletin uh, on page 5, and our custom here is when we're done with the reading, uh, then I will say this is the word of the Lord, and the, the congregation response is thanks be to God. So hear the word of God from the second book of Samuel, chapter 21. Now there was famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us, so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord of Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, whom she bore to Saul, Amani and Meshibetheth, and the five sons of Merab and the daughter Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Edriel, the son of Barzillai, the Meholathite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of the harvest, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day, or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabbath-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them, on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And they brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish's father. 
And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. This is the word of the Lord. So it's an odd passage, huh? Uh, it's, uh, it's probably a good rule that when you find a really odd passage, it's, it's probably teaching us something really important spiritually. Uh, and maybe, maybe not always. Sometimes I think passages seem strange to us because uh, we're unfamiliar with the culture uh, and so on. But uh, this one, I think, is actually teaching us uh, some very deep spiritual truths that relate to some of the things uh, that we've talked about on the idea of corporate sin uh, and imputation of sin. Uh, so to get a little of the background of this, we have to go way back and we have to talk about the story of the Gibeonites. Because if you look in this passage, it starts out saying that there was blood guilt on Saul and his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. And then the story continues that they, uh, the prophet uh, has said that. They go to the Gibeonites, and the Gibeonites say, let seven people killed in order to atone uh, for the sin of Saul. Uh, so who are these Gibeonites? Uh, what's going on there? So I'm going to go way back and talk about uh, who they were. So this goes back to the time of Joshua, when the Israelites were going into the land of Israel. And uh, you may or may not know, if you've read that part of the Bible, that God commanded a temporal judgment on these seven nations. And I sometimes with the, uh, with the youth call them the ites, right? You know, the Hittites, the Amorites, Canaanites, you know, they're all some kind of ites. Uh, and they were all under judgment of God, and he commanded them to go in uh, and wipe them out. But there was one tribe of, uh, called the Gibeonites, uh, who, when they see what's going on, they uh, come up with a plan, and they say, you know, these guys are going to win, the Israelites are going to kill us, uh, and they look like they're really on the winning side, so let's come up with a plan, and let's join in with them. And the way they do this is really kind of funny. They uh, take only dusty old bread and old clothes and things like that, and they march out of their city, they march all the way around, and they come from the opposite side to the people of Israel, and they pretend that they've arrived from a really long way, from someplace far away. And this is important because Israel had no command to wipe out everybody. They had a very specific command to wipe out just these seven nations. There was no general command to judge all the nations of the earth or anything like that. Uh, they only had a command to these seven nations. Uh, and so... As they uh, come in, they say, we're from outside, and um, we're starving, we left this other country, and we would like to join your nation, uh, under any conditions you set, we'll be your servants, uh, and uh, we'll obey you and do whatever you say. Israel makes a covenant with them, and a covenant uh, is a very serious thing in scripture, and we've talked about that from the pulpit many uh, times in this church. Uh, covenant is not just... A friendly agreement. The covenant is a blood alliance uh, in which they swear before the Lord that they are one people now and that they will never be parted. And so they become united to the Gibeonites. Well, then they find out just a few days later that they've been tricked probably when they walked into these empty cities and said, wait, where are all the people from these cities that we were about to attack? And uh, they realize that they've been tricked. But the covenant was so important, they said, we can't just go back on our word. We have sworn alliance with these people forever. They've become part of our covenant blood brothers. Uh, and so uh, even though they, are, uh, they tricked us, uh, nevertheless, we will be faithful to them. And later on, you see, actually, the Gibeonites uh, go back to their cities, and they're being attacked by the other ites uh, because they're mad at them for having made alliance with Israel. 
and Israel goes to their defense. And this is part of the nature of the covenant, that once you're in a covenant, you are one body together. Uh, and so Israel goes out to fight and to defend uh, the people who are attacking the Gibeonites. Okay, so now jump forward several hundred years. King Saul was the Saul before King David, uh, who's the king in our passage that's in front of us. Uh, and uh, King Saul, to make a long story short, was a king for a while and then was rejected by God uh, for sins that I won't go into. Uh, and then uh, he is killed in battle and David becomes a king in his place. And that brings us up to the story that we have in front of us where it says there was famine in the days of David for three years. Uh, and David sought the face of the Lord. And it says the Lord said, now it's probably a prophet that speaks to David. Uh, um, we don't have other evidence that the Lord spoke directly to David um, uh, verbally as he did to some of the prophets. But it's very likely that David uh, talked to the prophets. And so it says the Lord said, basically putting the Lord's words into this prophet's mouth. Uh, but he says there is blood guilt uh, between uh, the, uh, the house of Israel or the house of Saul uh, and the Gibeonites. Uh, now, why is it important that the Gibeonites are part of the story? I have two things here that I think relate to this uh, topic of corporate sin and corporate nature. Um, the first is that we have identities with people, and, and those identities are in, extremely important, and we can carry multiple identities. And so here we have a case of people who are ethnically different from the sons of Abraham, from the Israelites, and they are not, you know, hundreds of years later, they're still considered to be a different ethnic group. And everybody knows these are the Gibeonites. Uh, and yet, they are included uh, in the uh, covenant. They are included in the covenant people. And so they are part of Israel as well. Um, and so <clears throat> this is a, an important part for us to understand that um, we can have multiple identities. I can be both an American, I can be a Pittsburgher, I can be a Christian, uh, and so forth. Um, the other thing that's important about this is that, that having that ident ethnic identity doesn't need to lead to hatred of other groups. Uh, and we talked about this uh, on Sunday morning a couple weeks ago. I think a lot of people are very afraid of ethnic identities. They're afraid of corporate identities because they fear that that's going to mean, okay, if I'm for this group, uh, then I'm against that group. Uh, and I'm going to uh, hate those other ones as well. Uh, well, the Gibeonites are ethnically different from Israel, and yet they're included in the covenant, and the, they're held up as people who are included all the way through the Bible. And if you jump down all the way to the book of Nehemiah, which comes several hundred years after the passage in front of us, so now we've talked about you know, several hundred years go by between when they join Israel to when this story happens, go another few hundred years, and it's very interesting if you look uh, in your additional scripture, you know, everybody always skips genealogies, right? Uh, and uh, in genealogies, there's sometimes a lot of really interesting information to find out there. If you look on, chapter, on page 7 of the bulletin there, on Nehemiah chapter 7 is a lengthy genealogy, and everybody just kind of skips over that and says, well, that's boring, let's move on. But then right in the middle of it, and it's the very end of that passage in additional scriptures, it's listing all the people who returned from Babylon to set up the temple. And lo and behold, right in the middle of it, it says, and the sons of Gibeon were there. So think about this. These are people who are ethnically different from Israel. 
And yet they had, and so when they were all carried off by the Babylonians uh, to exile, uh, hundreds of years later, uh, then they are allowed to return to the land. And this ethnic group, the Gibeonites, goes back, and they go back with the Israelites. They consider themselves part of that same covenant community, even though they're still identified these hundreds of years later as being the Gibeonites, as being a different ethnic group. Uh, and so this is an example, and we have multiple examples in Scripture of this, of people who are coming into Israel and coming in from outside. So it really would be wrong to say that the nation of Israel was set up as an ethnic community. Uh, it was always meant to bring in people from outside. It was always meant to be inclusive, uh, to bring in people and to have them join. And so we have the book of Ruth as an example of a Moabite uh, who joins in with the Israelites and uh, becomes a, uh, a member of the community as well. And also in the time of David, we have the story of Uriah the Hittite and his wife Bathsheba, a very famous story. And Uriah is a Hittite, which is one of the ites that was supposed to be uh, destroyed as well. So one of the things, uh, just, just to summarize this uh, little first part here, is all the people that they're going in that God had laid judgment on, it was never the case that he was saying, even if they repent, doesn't matter, uh, wipe them out. There's always an implicit assumption in Scripture uh, that when God's judgment comes, that those who repent can still be drawn near to God in grace. And so if you look at another additional Scripture here, uh, in Joshua chapter 11, this is sort of a summary after all the battles. It says, There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, namely the inhabitants of Gibeon. Uh, the rest they all took in battle, because it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that they should be devoted to destruction and receive no mercy. In other words, the implication of this verse is, had they done like the Gibeonites and joined in with Israel, they would have not been destroyed. Similar story in the book of Jonah, where Jonah just goes and says, you were all about to be destroyed. He doesn't preach grace at all, and yet the people repent, and God relents and doesn't judge them. Uh, so there's always an implied uh, 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 rule in Scripture that even those outside, when God uh, is uh, calling down judgment on them, that there's always implicit in that, but if you repent, you won't be destroyed. But if you repent, if you come and join yourself to God, uh, then you are not to be uh, wiped out. And that happens multiple times. And we see multiple times people in Scripture from outside the community of Israel joining in, and these Gibeonites are part of that. Okay, now here's uh, uh, why the, uh, the sin of Saul is so serious then. Uh, basically, what he is accused of is genocide. Uh, he's, it's, you know, it says it puts it in sort of maybe terms that you don't um, get so clearly here. It says that Saul, in his zeal uh, for the, uh, what's it say, in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah, one could call that in his ethnic, in his ethnocentrism, in his racism, uh, whatever you want to call it, that he was mad that there was this different ethnic group that was living among them, uh, and uh, he tried to wipe them out. And so he's attempting to, gen to do genocide. It's not clear how effective he was, uh, but in fact, uh, that was his goal. It was to wipe out this other ethnic group. Uh, now, it's a little bit hard to translate this into the concept of racism, per se, because people in those days would have had a much smaller, narrower sense of identity. Probably to us, as modern people, looking at all these people, we would have called them Semites. And they would have, we would have said, well, they're all sort of in the same 
uh, category together. In Saul's thinking, and probably a lot of people in that day, uh, much smaller groups were your group identity. And so these are people who are coming from the Amorites, and they were very identifiably different. They were not uh, Israelites by birth. Uh, and yet, they had covenanted to follow the same God uh, and to belong to them. And so Saul is doing genocide, but even worse in an in a Old Testament sense is the fact that he's covenant-breaking. He's breaking a covenant with them. Uh, and covenant-breaking is a high and holy sin in Scripture uh, because it is made before the Lord. And to break covenant is basically to invite God to curse you. Uh, and we see that uh, coming out uh, in this passage. Um, now, this gets us now to the, to the concept of corporate sin. And this passage is very explicit about what's going on here. If you look here, it says, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house. So it's not just saying that Saul needs to be punished. It's saying that there is guilt on Saul's house. Now, some commentators have looked at this passage and they said, Well, uh, that's because uh, Saul recruited his children uh, and his sons to help with uh, putting them to death. And so they were all in, you know, uh, involved in this, uh, this slaughter that they were trying to do. Uh, but the passage doesn't say that at all. And actually, to an Old Testament mentality, it wouldn't really even be relevant. It wouldn't make sense because it's, the blood is on Saul, and whatever is of blood on Saul is on his house. And you hear that echoed sometimes in Scripture, for instance, in the New Testament, where the people calling out for Jesus' death say, His blood be on us and our children. The idea that blood guilt is something shared uh, generationally. And so um, I'm going to use a word that's sort of a theological word, this idea of imputation. Uh, the idea that when you are connected to somebody uh, and you are uh, in union with them, then their virtue becomes your virtue and your uh, sin becomes their sin and vice versa. Uh, and so we see this, for example, in the blessing side, in the blessing of Abraham, over and over in the Old Testament. It says, for the sake of Abraham, God was merciful and blessed his children. Uh, for the sake of David and his obedience, God was merciful and blessed them. It's not just, oh, because Abraham taught his children to be good, therefore they were good and God blessed them for their own good. It's, no, because actually because of their union with Abraham, then his blessing is connected to them as well. And the reverse is also true, as we see in the passage in front of us, that uh, because the family of Saul, his household, uh, is his household, then there is blood guilt on them because of the evil deeds of what King Saul had done uh, as well. So I want to um, just address briefly the difference between a spiritual reality uh, and a legal practice. Some people might object, and they would look at one of the passages that I put in the additional scriptures here, and say, but didn't the law of Moses say, fathers are not to be put to death for their children, nor should children be put to death uh, for their fathers. Each should be put to death for their own sin. That's in the law of Moses. Uh, and that is true. That is a legal principle. Essentially, we're talking about a difference between what government is called to do, including at the time of Moses, uh, and spiritual reality of what's going on in terms of our guilt before God as we stand before him. Uh, God, in the Old Testament, under Moses, limited the amount of things that government could, publish, uh, could punish. Uh, and that was for a very good reason, because if government under Moses uh, had been charged to kill and root out every sin, then who would be left standing the next day? 
Everybody uh, has sin. And so if government was commissioned to say, well, every sin has to be rooted out, every sin has to be punished to the full extent of the law, uh, including corporate guilt, then literally everybody would be falling under judgment. There would be no nation left uh, the next day. Uh, and we can say that even today. God is holding back on the judgment of sin. He does not judge every sin in history. Uh, because if he did, then who would be left standing? In fact, God is merciful to limit the amount of punishment on sin in this world. And so in the law of Moses, there is a legal principle that fathers are not to be put to death for their sons and vice versa. Uh, but that doesn't overturn a spiritual principle, which is that in fact, uh, there is corporate sin and that the guilt of the fathers falls on the children. Uh, and that kind of thing is said over and over. And we see that very explicitly here where it says that there is blood guilt on the house of Saul uh, because of the sin of Saul. Uh, so we're now at the point where we can say, well, okay, what's going on here? Uh, there is a spiritual reality that there is blood guilt. Uh, there is a legal restriction. And yet in this case, the, the prophet says that, that there should be an execution uh, for, for, of these seven sons in order to atone for, and he uses specifically the word atonement in this passage, in order to atone for the sin of Saul. So essentially this is not a laying down of a new legal principle, but it's a one-time act of judgment in history which God reserves the right to do. Uh, and so we see here that he's saying that basically God brings this to their attention by bringing a famine on the land in the first place, and at the end of the passage it ends with saying, and then God responded to their plea and lifted the famine, uh, and things went well. This is not laying down a new principle to say, okay, every time there is a corporate sin, now I'm changing the law of Moses, everybody should start doing this out. He's saying this is a one-time thing uh, that the prophets should do. Similarly, when the Israelites were called to judge the nations that I talked about earlier, uh, the nations that were living in the land of Canaan, there, that was not a general command for Israel to go wiping out every other ethnic group, far from it. They were specifically told, you shall make war against these nations and not any others. You should try to be at peace with the other nations, but these ones specifically have been called under judgment. And so God uh, reserves the right to bring in temporal judgments. Now, that leads to a very important question, which is, okay, well, if you're going to have an exception that God is calling for a temporal judgment, how do you know it's really from God? And the answer is, well, if you know you really have a prophet... And then you say, well, how do you know you really have a prophet speaking for God? And that will be something we can discuss in the Q&A. Uh, but you better be really sure, right? You better be sure that this really is the prophet speaking for God. Uh, and in general, though, Scripture does not have a lot of incidents like this. It does not have a lot of stories of God saying, you know, go out and kill these people for their sins. Generally, it's ruled by uh, judges in the towns who decided case by case uh, very similar to what our government today might do. Okay, so the bottom line is that the principle of corporate sin is very much established by this passage, that Saul has tried to commit genocide against the people that they had covenanted with, uh, and then God says there needs to be an atonement, uh, and the seven sons of Saul are hung on a tree, uh, and that atones for the sin, uh, and God lifts the curse on them. Uh, now the last bit that I'm going to talk about here then is how does this relate to us in the New Testament? 
Uh, and as I said before, sometimes the stranger the story, the more likely it is that it's actually teaching us a spiritual truth here. This is, in a lot of ways, I would say, really pointing to the work of Christ. And I just want to say, in general, we in the Reformed churches have a really long-standing tradition of preaching <clears throat> to say you should always look for Christ in every passage you're preaching on. And a lot of times, uh, other people who don't come from this tradition will say, eh, I, I don't think that's really the case. I don't, you're forcing an interpretation on, really, is there anything about Christ in this passage at all, or are you just making this up? Uh, and I would say sometimes it can be forced. Sometimes you can hear somebody sort of preaching, and you feel like, well, they've really sort of forced Jesus into that passage in an unnatural way. But I do think that it is very clear that Jesus is the theme of the entire Bible, and that uh, you should be looking for how Jesus relates to all this. Well, let's think about this as how this passage relates to Christ. I talked about this a couple weeks ago. We don't like generally in our culture the idea of imputation of somebody else's sin to me. I don't like the idea of saying, well, just because you're an American, you're held guilty for this, or just because uh, I'm, uh, you know, in whatever tradition, uh, in, the, in this denomination or whatever. Uh, but the fact is that when the scriptural principle is when you are united to somebody, to the degree that that union is real, to that same degree the imputation is just and legitimate. Uh, we don't think of ourselves generally as connected to anybody, and so we don't like the idea of being imputed with anybody else's sin. But that also then conversely means I can't be imputed with anybody else's blessing. Uh, and that is precisely what's going on on the cross. That Jesus is, and those who are united to him, Jesus is atoning for their sin. And so in this passage in front of us, uh, I, as I was studying this, I was struck by how many parallels there are with the story of Jesus. So first of all, the principle is established that also was given by Moses, that hanging somebody on a tree is a curse. The person who's hanged on a tree is accursed. Uh, and um, that actually says that in one of the additional scriptures I put there in the, in the, uh, from Moses. It says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and if you hang him on, his tr on a tree, his body shall not remain on a tree all night, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. Uh, and they, they don't obey this law in this passage. They actually leave them up for several days, it seems. Um, but the principle is established that there's something special about being hung up that is a curse. And you get a little bit of a glimpse of that when it talks about the, the, the woman, the daughter, chasing away the birds. What happens to somebody who's hung on a tree for several days? Uh, it gets pretty disgusting, right? The birds come down, peck them, eat them, uh, and, you know, things rot sets in. It is utter shame. And I think we shouldn't miss that that is exactly one of the points about Jesus dying on a cross, that he endured shame. Uh, not just sort of a nice clean death, but a very shameful death. And I think it's really striking how, if you think about it, in both this passage and in the story of Jesus, uh, the, the bodies are abandoned, and who's sitting around trying to keep some dignity to the situation? The women, right? So here we have a woman uh, who is sitting there trying to bring some dignity to the situation by chasing away the birds uh, and trying to keep them from this explicit curse that has been fallen on them. Uh, and so uh, there is that parallel as well, that there is an abandonment 
uh, and there was a woman uh, sitting at the, at the foot of the cross, so to speak, uh, trying to maintain some dignity there. The other thing you notice here uh, is that this is a royal family. Saul was a king. And there are seven sons of the king, seven princes who were put to death. Seven is an important number in scripture for sort of completeness or perfection. And it's once again, it's royalty suffering to save the nation. Right? We have the seven sons being put to death so that the curse on the nation could be lifted. And so just as Jesus is our king and yet died for us, uh, here we have royalty uh, being put to death uh, so that the curse on the nation might be lifted. Uh, and in a similar way, there is atonement going on in that um, there was a sin that was a corporate sin that had to be atoned for. In our case, that's exactly what Jesus did for us, that he took on himself a sin that wasn't his personally. He basically owned our corporate sin because of his union with us to say, I am not ashamed to, be called, to call them brothers, and they are my people, and so I will be the person hung up on a tree to be put to death like these sons of Saul, uh, to be put to death, to be cursed for the sake of the nation that the curse might be lifted. And so, now you may say, okay, well, you know, I don't see Jesus anywhere in here being talked about specifically, so I think maybe you're going a little too far with, with analogy and so on. But what we clearly have in this passage is the principle of atonement of one person being killed for the sake of the nation to lift the curse. Uh, and that only makes sense if you agree that there is a principle that you can be having sins imputed to you due to your union with them, either by birth uh, or by national identity or your family or whatever. In the case of Jesus, Jesus was willing to be united to us, to have our sin imputed to him, uh, and basically to own our sin as his own. Uh, and conversely, all of his blessing uh, then to be owned by us uh, as well. Uh, so, in general, we have this principle of corporate sin. And I want to just end with this to say, as I said a couple weeks ago, I think for some reason in our culture, we somehow have gotten to a point where we think that corporate sins are unforgivable, but personal sins are. So, you know, if I say, you know, to somebody, you are uh, personally in sin, but Jesus forgives you, we understand that is sort of, you know, sort of the gospel. But somehow when we think of corporate sins, we think of them as sort of going on forever. There is no payment that can ever atone for that sin. It's just a corporate sin that will just make you feel guilty for the rest of your life, and there's nothing you can do about it. And that's not the way Scripture works. The Scripture says that Jesus atoned for our corporate and our individual sin. And so we are freed from the burden of guilt, uh, from the blood guilt of our corporate body, whatever that may be for you, uh, as well as our individual sins. And so... The hope of the gospel is to say that indeed there is a lifting of the curse. There's a lifting of the curse of Adam. There's a lifting of the curse on your nation specifically for whatever its sins may be. And there is a lifting of your individual curse and the sins that you have added as well. And so when we look at this concept of atonement here uh, and the idea of corporate sin, it's not to increase your burden, but rather to say acknowledge your sin, acknowledge your corporate sin as part of a corporate body, but then turn from that and realize this too is under the cross, and this too can be atoned for. Now, uh, as uh, Matt talked about this morning a little bit, acknowledging your sin often then leads to actions. It leads to change to say, well, given that this is sin, uh, it's atoned for, 
uh, it would not have been appropriate, for instance, for these people to say, okay, well, let's go back to killing the Gibeonites some more now, now that that's atoned for, right? Um, there is a change of path, there's a change of behavior that comes from acknowledging our sin, both corporately and individually. Uh, but to some degree, that change of behavior rests on the idea that our sin actually can be atoned for and that we are free from that burden uh, and therefore we can be back in relationship with God. Let's pray.